0: Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, This is another, I would say, exciting edition of the Remnant podcast, but we just don't know yet. It's a black box. This is going to be another rank punditry edition of the Remnant podcast. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because the feedback that we got so far was that we should do more rank punditry things. But I got some grief from people saying I should do prepared or professional uh, rank punditry rather than off the top of my head or out of my nethers rank punditry. Of course, one of the definitions of rank punditry, one of the things that makes rank punditry rank is when it comes out of your nethers. Nonetheless, as you might be able to tell, I'm in a slightly agitated, ranty mood today. First of all, the victim just wouldn't get into the trunk and kept <laughs> fighting back, but that's not important right now. I had to take my daughter, Her, she's been nagging... Us about being about being able to play ice hockey for years, and we finally caved in and we got our ice hockey lessons. And so she had her first one today, which was made known to me late last night, and which meant I had to go drive her out there, and then I had to go out to Rockville, Maryland, a place where when Andy Dufresne misbehaves um, at Shawshank, the warden threatens to send him down there, and it is almost biblically unpleasant in terms of the weather in Washington, D.C., which is why I'm so glad that we booked this rank Punditry podcast, because uh, it turns out that Ross Douthit will not be able to come into the studio this week because the Jews have stopped his plane. If you don't know what I'm talking about, who's, na- who's being naive now? Now, the Jews are... Uh, it's a reference to a city councilman in Washington, D.C., who recently said that the oncoming snow in Washington was a result of the Rothschilds who were manipulating the climate so they could make money off of it. And the best part about his apology, he he finally apologized this week, the best part of his apology is to say that he's hardly offended anybody, but he never denied that it's happening. So... There's that and with 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 that incredible intro, I should also say that this week's episode of the Remnant is brought to you by donors Trust. We'll talk more about that later, but we love um, their sponsorship and their support um, and taking nothing away from them at some point I really would like man crates to advertise with us because I hear it on the commentary podcast and I want to do a whole sort of badly dubbed, greeks greek sword and sandal thing pronouncing it mancrates but that's something for another day anyway uh this all brings me to uh the introduction of our guest because you people demanded professional punditry and not simply rank scatologically derived from my nethers punditry and so we brought in a professional and the professional today is none other than my longtime friend and national review colleague jim garrity jim welcome
1: Jonah, I, I just don't know what to do after an introduction like that. Um, I, I will, you know... Every time you refer, Every time you refer to rank punditry, I'm like, I put on the deodorant this morning. But, oh, you know. No, it, it's re- it really is great to be here. I enjoy uh, everything you do in life and in work. Uh, and what's more is this really deals with my nagging doubt of, why hasn't Jonah had me on the show yet? He's got... All these other folks are on, the sh- are on his sh- podcast, but not me. Well, um... In fairness, I think the only other National Review colleague
0: I've had so far is Ramesh.
1: So you like him more than you like me? No, but his office is around the corner from my, ah, okay, the American okay, Enterprise Institute. Right, and,
0: and, okay. and I was like our third or fourth podcast. And I was like, ah, oh, crap, I need a guest. Ramesh! And I grabbed him. Um, and it was a little reminiscent of the early omens about a Trump deportation force because I was just grabbing this <laughs> small Asian man and dragging him away. But that's neither here nor there. So, where to begin? Uh, first of all, I should say you are the uh, Senior Political Correspondent for National Review.
1: Yes. Rich and I agreed on that title because that's what you call a political correspondent who gets old.
0: Yes. I'm very glad that I'm no longer an editor at large because
1: there are so many large editor jokes. <laughs> well, you're a senior editor now, right? I am a senior editor. Right, so it's, it's that you, have, you start having senior moments. I do. I do. Or, or senioritis. You just don't feel like doing anything anymore. And...
0: That's well, that's definitely true. But that's been, I, I've been an old soul for quite a while. You know, senior editor sounds kind of cool, and I'm kind of, kind of glad we did it, but the problem with it is I always used to be able to say, hey, man, I don't write the editorials. <laughs> and even though I really yeah. don't still write the editorials, I'm on the email that goes around about the editorials, and so I can't claim lack some sort of culpability. But for the most part, I don't have any problem with the editorials. It's
1: just, mm-hmm. it's just I always liked that option? It was sort of... or, or why did so-and-so write X? You know, why didn't you prevent them from writing that piece or something? Well, we still get a lot of that. Yeah. But. And how long have you been in National Review? Uh, started full-time, 2004. Yeah. Uh, started freelancing, 2002. So, and I, I was you know, trading emails with you even before then. And recently, when they did the uh, event for William F. Buckley at Heritage, uh, I was able to... Get, and everyone around the table had, had these wonderful stories about being on the yacht with Buckley and these great stories. You know, by the time I came along, and was doing the Carrie Spot Right, Buckley was no longer in the office. Didn't interact the, with him. The Carry Spot, dear listeners, is a uh, was a er, very early blog um, dedicated
0: to exposing the perfidy of John Kerry. Yeah,
1: it was basically every time John Kerry opened his mouth, I had to write two hundred words mm. uh, throughout the two thousand four campaign until. Which meant you wrote four hundred trillion words. Carpal tunnel was just <laughs> debilitating. Um, but it was you know how I started at National Review, and the but the one time I got to interact with William F. Buckley was at the Republican convention in two thousand in Philadelphia. I was writing for a longdefunct dot com, and you were kind enough to invite me to the National Review party at the uh, at the convention, and I got to hear uh, uh, Buckley telling a story about Thomas Dewey, and he was in the last time Republicans gathered in Philadelphia, and it was my one meet. So when I needed my Buckley story, yeah, I yeah. had my Buckley story entirely because of you. Also, the first time I got to meet uh, Robert George, but I never got to see you guys have the knockdown, dragout fight about DC versus Marvel yeah. that you guys have been promising for decades. That is the. Much
0: like the Rothschilds comeuppance. There's a long-promised but never-delivered uh, <laughs> event. It's funny. It is true at NR. It's it's all A, WFB, or B, WFB, in terms of, like, th- were you there after William mm. F. Buckley yeah. departed the scene or before? And I'm lucky. I don't I don't have nearly the number of stories that Rich and Ramesh and some of those guys, never mind friggin' Brookheiser, who uh, mm. his first piece for the magazine was when he was 14 and it was a cover, but... uh I had dinner at Buckley's house a few times. I um, had a really, I can't repeat the story here, amazing dinner with him on a boat, which I'll... If I, if I haven't shared the story with you before. I will share afterwards. And um, I should say on a cruise boat, not at his private boat. And uh, But my first cruise um, was in 2000. And uh, I was very grumpy because I'd been at the magazine for almost two years and I had not, or maybe more than two years. And i never been invited. And I get invited bring my wife, who was then my fiance, And back then, the moral standards of National Review were such that even though I had given her a ring, Ooh. it wasn't clear whether or not cohabitating on a cruise was acceptable. Mm. Those days are over. But, um, uh, so my wife and I, we we fly out to meet the boat halfway into the cruise, and our flight is canceled, and we're stuck in an airport, and we can't get there, and so we get shunted off to... San Juan, Puerto Rico, and we're put up for the night there and we are literally in the room the night that Al Gore concedes the Florida recount. <laughs> so in the morning we had to get up crazy early and meet the ship in St. Barts because this was like a smaller cruise ship, not like the ones we do these days. It was it was looked like a sailboat. And flying to St. Barts, there's this crazy sort of air pocket thing that nearly kills one out of three people who do it, and then get there and then we're getting into this Jeep and we're going over the entire island, and then we rush on the boat. I'm late for a panel. My first panel moderated by William F. Buckley. Ah. No time to shower, right? I just throw on it's a jacket. And
1: automobiles. I'm yes.
0: pouring sweat, and I get up there, and the first question from Buckley, it was about the fact that George H.W. Bush was... A crier, right? And it was about men crying in public, and whether or not that is a um, acceptable form of manliness, right? And um, and he wheels on me, and he says, "Surely, Jonah, it would not cause the perturbations of your cromulence to uh, protest to deny a man an excess of lachrymosity." And I always remember the word, that's where I learned the word "lachrymosity" because I didn't know it at the time. I'm recognizing several <laughs> phrases from several Jonah columns in
1: this, uh, in this exchange. And I, I just had to punt. Um, and I have- <laughs> That would have made me cry in public, oh. though. There's your answer right there. It, if you're, was, it was
0: awkward as hell. But anyway, so, where to begin? Um, let's start big picture for the rank punditry part, portion yeah. of this, this, this podcast. Um, uh, first of all, one last thing about the Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: no, we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> does the ha- do the Republicans hold on to the House? Uh, I'm not feeling good these days. A little. If you look back, probably about a, maybe six weeks ago, I wrote a piece on the open house, uh, open seats in the House, and I said, look, you know, there are about four of them where you're like, ah, oh, no way we keep that seat. Those are, you know, they went heavily for Hillary. Four, maybe six more. You're like, okay, that's going to be fifty-fifty. You know, the waves against us. We could lose those. But easily two-thirds of them were in these pretty darn red districts, ones that Republicans had held for a really long time. Yeah, sometimes it's because they got this really, you know, uh, well-known incumbent who had been there. But some of them were like seats where the Democrats had not won since the 1870s, right? So, you like Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, central Pennsylvania, uh, you know, the parts in Ohio and and the suburbs of Dallas, places that are pretty darn Republican-leaning. Um, three would say, okay, you know, all other things being equal, if they don't recruit a drooling imbecile, uh, as the candidate winning, you know, Republicans should be okay. Now I'm less certain of that because one of the seats on the list was Pennsylvania 18, right. uh, where Tim Murphy was unopposed a bunch of years, uh, and was usually winning, you know, a good 60, 70% of the vote. Um, and you saw what happened last night, no- you know, last week. Now, all, th- you know, keep in mind that Sikone did not was was not a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. No. Uh that this was, you know, you know, but that doesn't explain a 20 point shift. Right. So if I'm the Republicans, yeah, it could be that bad. And you and I are now of the age where we I I remember 2006 yeah. where the whole year like, ah, it's not looking good for Republicans. Ah, the Iraq war is pretty bad. Bush is very unpopular. All, you know, not wildly disastrous. Okay. I would say similar in terms of the unpopular president dynamic, but I mean, the economy is doing really well right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, unemployment in the Pittsburgh area, uh, I believe, it was you know the metropolitan area was four point five percent, which covers some of that district. This, you know, these are if you're a Republican incumbent or even a Republican uh, non-incumbent, these are not bad circum you know, national environments to run in, at least in terms of the economy. We don't believe we're at war. We can have a separate conversation about whether we're actually still at war. A little war, uh, yeah. You know, uh, barring this uh, information in 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 Austin, you know, that there hasn't been terrible terrorist attacks and, and things like you know, th- these are not bad environments to run. As a Republican, and yet Ciccone lost. Uh, they lost Alabama. They they lost a whole bunch of seats. Republicans have good reason to panic. And I, you know, I, I don't know if I want to go right right into your wheelhouse. house, but when the president's approval rating is in the upper thirties and low forties, uh, it's very tough for his party to win the house or keep the house. So, now isn't I remember?
0: I think I talked about this on our last week's podcast. Amy Walter had a piece a while ago about how incumbents who stay. That that in wave elections, incumbents still actually do pretty well. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that the people who are vulnerable see that a wave is coming and they retire, right? There's, and so, yeah. And then the problem is, is that open seats, it's it, it, methodologically it's kind of difficult to yeah. figure out whether the seat was lost because it was open or the seat was lost because it was vulnerable and that's why the yeah. guy quit. Right? Uh, Daryl
1: Issa hung on by the skin of his teeth yeah. in 2016. Uh, not running for re-election. Um, it's Orange Orange County is drifting left. Um, At least in terms of voter, you know, we can debate culture and all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, a bunch of the California seats are in that category. Um, uh, Southern New Jersey um, was considered one of the more Republican-leaning parts of the state. Um, With a low bar. uh, Exactly. Uh, You know, this is a state where other than Christie, Republicans had not won a statewide race in a really long time. Democrats feel really good about their recruit in that district. You know, if if you're the, the other thing is, I kind of wonder, and this this might you know the good thing about doing these podcasts is sometimes you talk aloud about future column ideas. I got loud, yeah. Um, oh, one, one thing though, to, I, I'm, I'm
0: loath to take away somebody's nervous crutch, hmm? but and I don't know if the listeners can pick up on it, but whenever you emphasize a point, you say ah, you slam down your coffee cup and uh, see. This is like this. is where Jonah.
1: I've had it. Yeah. Okay. So just I'm like, breaking the fourth
0: wall here. Right, so don't.
1: To make the, uh, the clip-clop sounds of the horses and all that kind of stuff. Lots of good sound effects in a podcast. Yeah, we can do all, right. all that. I got the coconut shells. Please. All right, great. Um, so if you're a Republican in the House right now, the good news is you're in a majority. You have a Republican president for at least the first time since uh, uh, the end of 2008. And in a lot of these cases, for the, a lot of these House Republicans, this is, you know, you, you weren't in Congress back then. Right. You have a president who's signed into law a tax law that probably is is what you, if you're if you're Paul Ryan that's what you've be, be, you know your your life's goal in Congress has been. On the other hand, you have a White House where your uh, the the president's attention can be distracted by whatever's on the cryon at Fox News. Mm-hmm. He can go into a meeting with lawmakers about gun control, and let's let's say. To take a random example, Jonah, concealed carry reciprocity is one of your big, uh, one of your big priorities. You right. want to have, if you have a concealed carry permit, that you can go to any state in the country and not be arrested for violating their, their gun laws. If you've licensed to carry in your home state, the president will just say, yeah, we're never doing that. Right. Uh, to Steve Scalise, no less. Right. Um, and then say, oh, by the way, he wants the assault weapons ban. Oh, by the way, he wants to raise the, you know. Now, the president will come back and, and walk that back within a day or two. But you have a president who at any given moment can say anything on any issue, and it makes it a lot harder to uh, to pass this stuff. So best case scenario, you hold onto the House narrowly in 2018. There's a good chance you're going to be in the minority. You've got a president who only intermittently pays attention to your priorities and things like that. You know, post-Congress life must be looking pretty good right now. Right. Also, right? You know, also the prospect
0: of raising a million, million five, yeah. two million, whatever it is, while you've got if you don 't have a, if you don 't have one of these districts where you 've got the little old ladies in tennis shoes who listen to rush every day if you've got one of these pr- more purplish dish- districts where you need some sort of more mainstream money or suburban money or just suburban mm-hmm. voters having to spend the next seven months threading the needle of explaining why you love trump 's policies but you don 't support this tweet, but you do support this and you think this is good. Yeah. That's got to be frigging exhausting,
1: right? Yeah. And again, this is not the environment that a lot of these guys who got elected in 2010 or 2014 signed on for. Right. Uh, this is a you know much more traditional conservative Tea Party agenda. And you have a president who overlaps with that sometimes and sometimes is... Ver- it's certainly in terms of controlling spending.
0: But there aren't uh, that many more retirements possible, are there? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's only like there might be a deadline in California and a couple other places. Yeah, we we
1: are starting to get up to the filing deadlines right. for a bunch of these states. So I, my my guess is we're pretty much done. I know you're at the most in I don't remember how many years off the top of my head, but we're we're up to 30 some. Yeah. Um and that's a lot. Right. And and so my guess is that you know, under normal in a normal political environment, this would be tough for Republicans but manageable. I think what has Republicans freaked out and justifiably freaked out after Pennsylvania is they tried messaging on the tax cuts in advertising and it didn't move the needle. Right. And like I said like yeah, you know, like I mentioned a few moments ago, if you're in a good environment and people are seeing their their paychecks get a little bit bigger, and and the you know Democrats made this insane messaging of crumbs and all that kind of stuff, you should be doing fine, right? You know, and they're not, and right. so my suspicion is is that as much as people may like the tax cuts, as much as people may like generally the policies coming out of the administration, there was always going to be a trade off when they nominated Trump that you're getting a certain amount of blue collar, quote unquote Reagan Democrats, you know, the folks who were never we're drifting away from Democrats to begin with. And in exchange, Republicans are going to be trading away a certain amount of suburban moms, you know, the minivan driving, nice women who don't like all of the antagonism and furiousness right. of the Trump. I was there at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia in 2016 where Chuck Schumer was absolutely positive that this was going to be a winning trade-off for the Democratic Party. So it's conceivable that uh, this could, you know, work out for the Republicans. But I think what I, I had emailed you, this was this nagging question. So you look at the total number of people who voted for uh, Saccone. Again, it's a special election, right? It's in February. It's not normal. You expect turnout to be really down. But there's 100,000 people who voted for Trump in that district on election day 2016 who either didn't vote for the Republican in this race or right. voted for Conor Lamb. That's a lot. Yeah, um, there, There's a good chunk of voters out there who voted for Trump and aren't showing up for the Republicans, at least in these special elections, and may or may not show up for these Republicans in the midterms. If now one possibility is it's the equivalent of the Obama voters who vote once every four years and then forget about politics for a while. I think what the Republicans probably ought to be contemplating is the fact that some people were willing to roll the dice on Trump in election day 2016, didn't like Hillary, so saw it as a better option. Well, Trump is now a known quantity, right? And they don't like it, particularly yeah. these suburban soccer moms. Yeah.
0: No, I, look, I, I, I think. I mean, I just not just think. I mean, I, I believe at least from a, a pastiche of polling data, anecdotal stuff, just general impressions about how things are playing out, gratuitous eavesdropping around the country that uh, the, the 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 suburbs curse for Trump is real, right? But there's also this problem that if you just go by the policy stuff, right, which I think is a bad argument, and it's one you hear from a lot of my friends who say, look at all these great policies that we're getting from Trump. It's It's not that I disagree with a lot of the policies. It's that It's sort of like saying, hey, you know, look at these healthy trees amidst a forest fire. Right. Um, You're just missing something in the picture. These trees have never been warmer. (laughs) (laughs) Is that uh, but but even so on the policy front. Right. The Trump's positions divide the GOP. And now because it's a Trumpified party, the GOP's positions divide the GOP. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, They divide the Trump coalition. Let's put it that way. Right. So Trump's a protectionist. The party's not. Meanwhile, everything in Trump's personality unites independents and the left, right? And the old point of wedge issues, which I've always defended, right, was you want issues that divide your opposition and unite your coalition, right? I mean, this was the obsession that we had the last 10 years with 70-30 issues, right? You want to come up with issues that divide the Democrats and unite most moderates and, and conservatives. Trump... Loves the 30s. He hugs the 30s, right? He's and he's like, and he talks as if hugging the 30 wins over the 70. Yeah. And and so I think that you know part of it again, I, I I think the personality stuff is is turning off vast numbers of college educated and suburban types. But even on the policy stuff alone, most of his position, even tax cuts, the way he did it was in in some ways a a 30 issue in the sense that. There are a lot of blue-collar guys who are like, you know, wh- why are we cutting taxes for corporations while my health care is getting more expensive and all that kind of stuff? That's why Connor Lamb's appeal worked, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that some of these guys – this is the point I was trying to make. I think some of these voters who voted against Saccone might actually – and it's, I think it's just some, not all – might actually be making the calculation that they think – they thought Trump was more of a Democrat when they voted for yep. him. They think if they get Democrats in the House, that will force Trump to come – over to the side of the Democrats on more issues, which is where they want them, on things like healthcare
1: and all of the rest. And I'm not sure that's a dumb calculation. No, it's by no means a dumb calculation. And um, an aspect which got a decent amount of discussion after uh, the, the Pennsylvania 18th dis- uh, district special election was that Connor Lamb was a kind of Democrat we hadn't seen in a little while. And I'll take you back to, you know, 2006, uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, the, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the shark of, uh, of the Democratic Party looked at how Republicans had won for, for a long time and said, look, a lot of times they go after – Democrats will nominate somebody who's been in the state legislature. And so what Republicans do is they look at that state legislative record and they count all the times they voted for a tax increase at the subcommittee level, at the committee level, and at the, in the full chamber. And sometimes it would, you know, then go to the other house and then it would come back and they'd vote on conference and all kind of stuff. And what you'd have is the perfect line that you'd see in one Republican attack ad after another. You know, John Smith voted to raise taxes 874 times. And the average uh, person who's, who's not a down the line liberal hears that, like, oh, my God, that man must be a maniac, yeah. right? You know, um, and that works. So it would be if you look at a guy's you know, record and he's voted for stuff that's unpopular, you just stick that to him enough and eventually it's going to drive down his numbers. Well. If you nominate Heath Schuler, former you know NFL quarterback, and you know uh, somebody like Connor Lamb, who's a fe- former federal prosecutor, they don't have that legislative record to to right. attack. And so you, the you know uh, our colleague Alexander has done a great job pointing out that no, he's not really pro life. Right. But a lot of people perceived him to be pro life. And I wrote had this little corner item, this basically asking, did they think he was pro life because he just kind of looked pro life? Right? I mean, he's a former federal prosecutor, former Marine. Clean-cut, tall. Yeah, you know, when you picture the generic Republican congressional candidate, they look like Connor Lamb, right? right? And so this this perception that he was seen as more conservative than he really was. Now, a really fun question for the next, you know, four or five months is whether Democrats can nominate Connor Lamb types, guys who can plausibly claim to be, oh, I'm not like those other Democrats. I'm a centrist Democrat. I'm it, a you know. It seems like there are some. There are some. Uh, unfortunately for the Democrats, the energy in their party is uh, impeach Trump now. Yeah, yeah. uh intersectionality reparations uh you know you know, as far le- you know far left as you can get and so as much as I may sound on this podcast as if I'm like oh you know Trump Trump's done he's over it's all hey, look the Democrats could still you know shoot themselves in the foot or worse by nominating some maniac uh, oh, sure. in 2016 or 2020 and uh you know it's a very similar dynamic occurs yeah I mean I, I did a post in the corner yesterday about how it just
0: seems incandescently obvious to me that Nancy Pelosi should step mm-hmm. down, right? I mean, I, oh yeah. I mean, other than the fact that you know she's like Richard Gere and an officer and a gentleman, I got no place else to go, right? But like, she should just step down because she, we've done I mean, the Republicans have done to her. I would argue largely fairly mm-hmm. what Democrats did to Tom Delay and Newt Gingrich before is they turned them into a Medusa's head, right? And you know, petrify your enemies. And if they could even, I mean, I don't think that they would. I think they would actually. Who's that? sort of moderate blue-collar Democrat from Ohio that wants her job. Oh Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan, right? They put someone like Tim Ryan at the mm-hmm. top of as the speaker. That will it's all BS virtue signaling to a certain extent because they're all going to still yeah. vote the same way they vote. But it you know, it would be so much easier for rank and file wannabe Connor Lamb types. If they could just say, "Hey, look,
1: she's not even—you know—you're not vo- a vote for me. Mm-hmm. Isn't a vote for Nancy Pelosi." And but, but at this point, it may be more useful to the Connor Lamb types to be able to say, "Sure, I will not vote to make Nancy Pelosi the next Speaker of the House." Wh-
0: one of the things that I've, yeah. which uh, yeah. 19 of them told yeah. uh, uh, Dave Weigel mm-hmm. that they would not commit one way or the other to voting, where they would not say whether they would vote for Nancy Pelosi, which is not, at the very least, is not a vote of
1: confidence. Yeah. Um, Republicans should be hoping that Nancy Pelosi does not pledge to step down or retire from politics or something. Oh, I agree. Because because if they don't, we, we will have to invent her, right? I mean, basically, the, the, the next Democratic leader in the House probably will be not, in terms of ideology and policy, not that different from, from Nancy sure. Pelosi. But let, you know, if you ask Democrats, God, why do you guys have Nancy Pelosi as speaker or as a as leader of your party in the House? The, the, the answers you keep getting are, well, she's really good at fundraising. Mm. Possibly true. Uh, what I don't quite understand is how much does she cost the party when she comes right. out and says we have to pass the bill in order for you right. to know what's in it or crumbs or this tax bill is Armageddon. you know like yeah. nancy pelosi manages to take the democratic position on any particular piece of legislation and come up with the single least effective way of making that argument the single least plausible you know would um, know, you ask you know, so there's this question of you know the fundraising is there she knows where a lot of bodies are buried And I've heard this line so many times, Jonah, the only conclusion I can come to is that she literally knows where bodies are buried (laughs) and will be able to blackmail people uh, if they don't support her for that. Uh, The other thing I also kind of wonder, you you mentioned, you know, she's got no place else to go. You know, she's getting up there in years. She's going to be 78 next week. How many times have we seen somebody? They retire and, and, you know... Life does not go on much long beyond that because their mission, their purpose in life was related to their job.
0: Oh, no, no. I I
1: I totally get why she wants to stay. I mean, like,
0: again, she's got no place else to go. I mean, she's worth $200 million. But this is – she thinks the country needs her. She thinks that this is where she belongs. She wants that frigging gavel back like it's frigging Thor's hammer. Um, I get all that. And plus, given how good her plastic surgery is, you know, there may be a portrait. (laughs) <laughs> of an old lady in an attic somewhere that she could be going for another 100 years, right? Um, do you ever watch Benson? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember the red-headed older lady on Benson? Uh, she had her eyes, she I'm just she reminds me so much of Pelosi. Eyes crazy wide open like every time she blinks, she passes gas, kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what, but anyway, the image came into my head. But So this raises... And this is not a great example, right? Because... And I I conceded that I did this thing on the corner about this, but you can make an argument or I could see someone making an argument that let's say that Tim Ryan were the option here, which we don't know is the case, right? From a conservative perspective, you would at least be more sympathetic to the idea that it would be good if Nancy Pelosi stepped down and this Ryan guy took over, right? Because... Meanwhile, if you're a Republican, if you're just a straight-up GOP establishment, you know, consultant guy, you'd be like, are you crazy? We've invested millions of dollars yeah, yeah. in demonizing this woman, and you want us to start over from scratch with someone who's going to be harder to demonize? I mean, Nancy Pelosi's literally a San Francisco Democrat, yeah. right, you know? Who lives on Billionaires Row. Literally the name of the street <laughs> is Billionaires Row in San Francisco. That I didn't know. Yeah. And, uh, and she uses the skin of babies for her morning beauty ritual. No, she doesn't. she doesn't. She doesn't. I don't know. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's actually... Uh, never mind. But the the thing is, is that... And my point is... So I remember in 2004, Ramesh was the first person to really make this point to me about how you know a lot of us were going nuts on the right about how great it would be if Howard Dean were nominated by the Democratic Party to run for president because he was a nutter, right? And you know, uh, sort of a McGovern type, and it would be so much easier to beat a real sort of peacenik. And for kids today who don't remember, Howard, for a, like a year, everyone thought Howard Dean oh, yeah. was going to be the next, uh, not only the next Democratic nominee, but the next president of the United States, right? He was just way ahead in the polls. It looked like it was great. He's um, here to
1: represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah!
0: He was doing this, And yeah. he was doing this whole, you know, Harry Truman meets Howard Beale thing, and and a lot of Republicans at least a lot of Republicans were really psyched about the party nominating him because he would be so much... They thought he would be so much easier to beat. Anyway, Ramesh made this point to me, um, which became moot after Howard Dean did his whole scanners thing, head exploding, thing in Iowa. But Ramesh made this point to me. He said, look, you know, the point of the conservative movement is not just to get Republicans elected. It's to move the center of gravity in American politics rightward. And if Howard Dean pulls the Democratic Party to the left... The Republican Party, as a result, will move leftward, too, because elections are one where the political center of gravity is. uh, Democrats move crazy left. Republicans move left to capture the middle where the Democrats vacated it. And you can go back and you can look at a lot of elections where that happens to be the case. Nixon wins by capturing the center, moves the Republican Party leftward to to a certain degree. And anyway, so my point is, you could make a case from a conservative perspective If you actually care about more than just being a GOP cheerleader, that it would be better for the country if they got rid of Pelosi. And I just think this is a distinction that is lost on a lot of conservatives these days, where you are supposed to, like, I mean, I remember in the early days of the Trump boomlet, everyone was saying, he's our nominee, our nominee, as if, like, you know, he had pulled the sword from the stone and now for where I must bend the knee. I mean, literally, there's some people who talk like that. And I was like, I don't care if he's the nominee. doesn't mean I'm going to change. You know, it's like, oh, now, all of a sudden, two plus two is five, right? And this distinction is something that I think is sort of lost on people. And one of the things I like to point out to people is the reason we got, what's his face, uh, uh, Lieberman as a senator was because Bill Buckley endorsed the Democrat in a Connecticut Senate race over the Republican, because the Republican, Lowell Weicker... Was one of the truly last great liberal Republican crap weasels, mm. and and bu- part of Buckley's argument was that it's better for the country if we have, you know, yes, it would be better to have a really conservative Republican running, and then I would support that person. But it's better to have a conservative Democrat than a liberal Republican. We need to clarify these sorts of issues. And today, in this environment, the idea of importing a, Demo- a more a more conservative Democrat over a Republican, it just Seems like otherworldly.
1: Right? Yeah, I'm going to make one qualified counter argument to that, which is that I think if if Tim Ryan, you know, by some, let's say Democrats win the House, right, and they say, oh, we don't want Pelosi, we want a nice moderate guy like you know Ohio Democrat Tim Ryan, but Tim Ryan, I think, would eventually drift leftward. Oh, I agree with, um, that. I you know, agree with that. I agree. With and that. what's more is that Baby steps. Jim. This is, this is the experience of the Democrats I mentioned earlier who were elected in that wave of 2006. Yes. You know, there were some who I think Keith Schuler would rank among them, uh, Jim Webb style Democrats sure. who, who, you know, you could argue really were different from a San Francisco liberal like right. Nancy Pelosi. Once Obama was in office, the vast majority of them went along with either okay. cap and trade or or the stimulus, or Obamacare, or, you know, did they, you know, deviate from the party, maybe a little bit on gun legislation? Maybe. Dan Lipinski, who is uh, facing his primary, I believe just today, um, did not vote for Obamacare, was a, you know, genuine pro-life Democrat. But really, by and large, most of those people fell in line. And my guess is that until there is a powerful centrist force... In either party structure, something like the old Democratic leadership, like like people scoff at the Democratic Leadership Council back in the '90s with Bill Clinton. This was actually a serious force in, in Democratic Party sure. politics. Sure. Uh, right now, there there are two giant sons in American politics. The, 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 you know, the, whether you call it the hard right or what, one pretty far on the right, and one pretty far on the left. And if you get elected as a Democrat, the gravitational force of that that energy, that that fear of primary challenges, that you, you just start drifting. I, I just don't believe. You know, I. I have, no, I. I, yeah. I agree. I agree with that. And 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 again, as I
0: as I put in the piece, my point was also. I mean, I. The counter argument to me is just that, in terms of actual Republican policy victories, holding on to the House, mm-hmm. would be better than watching yeah. blow these down. So I mean, I, I agree with all that. But at the same time, I do think that it's an important distinction that conservatives need to keep in yeah. mind more. I mean, this show is called the Remnant for a reason, and some points need to be made. Um, all right, so uh, let's switch gears real quick and um, this Cambridge Analytica thing. Mm. I am more and more inclined to, to say nothing burger. Explain where you come down on this.
1: Sure. Not terribly different from you, but I'll make two points. So, what, Well, the first is that Cambridge you – know, so the, the story for anyone who has not kept up to speed. Cambridge Analytica was this firm, uh, heavily funded by the Mercers. Uh it still exists. Uh, right? Yeah, still yeah, okay. still you – know, okay. although, well, when are people going to listen to this? Uh, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. you know, it's – That was involved in the Trump campaign. It was originally involved in the Cruz campaign uh, that that basically said, we can do amazing things through social media that, you know, can can drive up turnout and, and enhance your messaging and polish your floors and do all kinds of great stuff. Um, if you give us lots of money, you know, and what they did, they said. It's not just a floor wax. It's a dessert topic. Exactly, yeah. See, I can make those references with you, Jonah, and you get them. So uh, to make a long story short, they contracted with this academic uh, over at Cambridge University who reached out to Facebook and said, hey, I'm going to do this little quiz I'm going to put out on, on Facebook. And it's going to collect users' data. They'll, they'll consent to it. Uh, and I'm going to collect data on them and their friends and their connections and their social networks and, and all kinds of stuff. It's It's a political quiz. Um, but I'm only using it for strictly for academic purposes, right. and the Facebook attitude is, well. Oh, for academic purpose, that's fine. If you're trying to use it for a campaign or for marketing or for business, re- well, then we'd have a problem. But no, no, this is to- totally hunky dory. And this professor just turned around, gave the same data to the Trump campaign, Cambridge Analytica, working for the Trump campaign. And here's where it gets a little less plausible. If you believe. Uh, Cambridge Analytica they had cracked the code of all human psychograph, and that basically they they made people vote for trump They, they got you know they, either they got them to vote when they weren 't going to vote or they changed their mind in reluctance or they figured out ways to get people to not vote for Hillary. They had cracked the code on mind control uh, or hypnosis or and, and there are people who talk about this who really you know including the whistleblower. Uh, Wiley, who keeps saying things like you know they can make you you know they 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 look under your skin at your deepest, rudest you you know passions and desire you know, and um, at the end it's it's Facebook advertising and, right. and like and then some of it is oh they founded fake groups and fake users and and all kind of stuff. In the end, I don't. I, I, there's a, there, are, first of all, there are plenty of other folks who have, and I, I've been in the dot com world since the the late nineties. Who kept talking about oh I've got this latest G whiz thing that will make you uh, they, they can you know do amazing things uh, I use the term in the corner today floating sticky eyeballs right um, and and ultimately what Facebook does if you're always like why you know, why is Facebook Zuckerberg just wanted to make the world a better place eh, somewhat but ultimately it's you know like all media entities it's, it has your eyeballs it has your attention and they can put ads on it right and that's one of the things that it can do. Your eyeballs and your information about you, about what kind of products you're likely to buy or services to use or stuff like that, that's the only thing Facebook has that's of value. Right. And that's what they sell, right? Now, um, what Cambridge Analytica did, it it lied when it said it was for academic purposes. There was fraud involved. I would say if you want to prosecute them for fraud, throw the book at them, go right ahead. And the – over the UK, the Channel 4 interview – where they say, "Oh, we can use prostitutes from the Ukraine, and we can bribe." But I mean, they—they sound like they leave a trail of slime wherever they go. But this doesn't mean that Cambridge Analytica has figured out some way to use Facebook to, you know, uh, Jedi mind trick people into voting a certain way. And it's really kind of creepy to see how much people are totally convinced. And my my suspicion is there are certain there's a chunk of people who are still trying to understand why Trump won, and the simple. Yeah, expl- no, I think that's it. I mean, right, you know, and that's that. I, I yeah. should I should
0: I should asterisk or caveat what I. I I don't think it's a nothing burger in the th- in the sense that I think Facebook has some splaining to do. Mm. Yeah. And it's in trouble and it needs to come to grips with the fact that it sells its users as products. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I am not a let's regulate stuff, you know, as a first recourse kind of guy. But I think this is the kind of thing that we got to start thinking through a little bit. Because I think I'm not on Facebook. I basically think Facebook is evil. Um, I think what it does is it causes people to curate their lives in a way to make other people envious, and um, that is kind of pernicious. And I think that uh, Facebook is entirely useful and, and justifiable for maintaining friendships with people you knew from the real world. It is not the same thing as creating new real relationships or real sense of community. But we can save that for my book. The, um, so I think Facebook is in trouble. They need to figure something out. Um, they're going to have to throw some money at lobbyists and 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 what's-his-face Zuckerberg is going to have to testify at some point. And I think Cambridge Analytica, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that maybe this time next week or the week after um, you could get an amazing number of either Weinstein Company or Cambridge Analytica distress sale accoutrement, right? You know, you could do up your whole house with, like, the Weinstein Company... Uh, bathroom signs and the Cambridge Analytica uh, urinal mints or whatever the hell they use. And so I think they're in trouble. But this idea that that these guys cracked the code is not in sense. And the idea that they I – mean, I mean, you know the stuff better than I do. Most of the reason most people use Cambridge Analytica to the extent they used it was to suck up to the Mercers, right? And it was sort of like – using Cambridge Analytica was kind of like – Giving their nephew, you know,
1: their dumb in- nephew, an internship, and well, it, you know, Nick's the guy running it. Kept also saying, "No, we've discovered stuff that nobody else can do." But
0: people in that this business people- lie
1: so much, yeah. You know, granted, and and Wiley, the guy who, uh, uh, you know, is, is now the whistleblower. You know, really was this apparently this savant, you know, guy who, who you know studied coding, and you know, look, any campaign will tell you it's good to have a presence in social media. You can reach people who you otherwise might, you know. What I've never quite gotten is that basically, you know, like, and I I made this point yesterday and everybody kept, I'll I'll come back to the example everyone kept pointing to. Does a commercial make you want to go out and buy the product? Well, if you're hungry and you see, you know, a Big Mac or something, oh, maybe it does make you hungry, but it doesn't have the ability, you know, Jonah, I will make you eat the Big Mac, you know, and, and that kind of thing. The example people kept pointing to was the guy who went to, uh, the Comet Pizzeria in D.C. with the guns because mm-hmm. he'd heard that there was some sort of child smuggling operation right. in the basement. That's not the average American, right? This guys I think he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And so the, he, they did interviews with him. He's already a nine-eleven truther, right. uh, or at least you know flirting with that sort of thing. So yeah, there are probably some people who are are vulnerable to uh, that's social also, media
0: messaging. But and, that's also fake news, right? It's a different thing. It's sort of like everyone used to say Steve Glass, who I knew, mm-hmm. right? The Guy yeah. made up all the stuff in the New Republic. Oh, he should write novels because he's such he has such a brilliant imagination. I was like, no, it is really easy to take advantage of readers if they're coming in in good faith mm-hmm. to a magazine and th- on the assumption that this is the truth. If if you tell them up front, oh no, this is a made up story. This is a really dull yeah. made up story. If you tell people it's true about. You know, that that it's coming across as, like, real news, whether it's on 4chan or through the fillings in your teeth, that there's a child molestation ring at Comet Pizza, where I've eaten, by the way, mm-hmm. and I saw nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's It, it comes yeah. into a different part of your brain, and there are people who are more susceptible to that than just sort of straight-up advertising.
1: But the exact same phenomenon. Uh, and this is, you know, Jonah, this is why I'm glad I'm doing your podcast, because only you would care about mid-'90s journalistic scandals that everybody <laughs> else has forgotten about. Stephen Glass's pieces, they're running in the New Republic. Basically, played to a left of center audience's perceptions of how crazy people on the right were. Right. Right. Oh, CPAC is full of this, you know, Nero style debauchery. You know, now, I mean, admittedly, within a decade or two, it was accurate. Right. Eventually, CPAC got that way. Uh, But at the time, CPAC was actually kind of a boring, wonky, you know, get together. The stockbrokers who were praying to George H.W. Bush. Companies bending over backward, like everything he did, kind of was saying to the the existing audience of the New Republic, "Hey, you know those people you don't like? They're really silly, right? They're really foolish. Here's you know, let me show you. Let how. Let me take advantage of your confirmation bias by right? telling you exactly. exactly the stuff you wish was were- yeah." So, to the extent people are worried about, so here's the: if you're you know on the fence and kind of leaning towards Trump, maybe you see something on Facebook that makes you say, "Yeah." All right, I'm a, if you're on the fence and not sure you want to vote for Hillary This is like you know the whole idea of like the Russian spot ads on Facebook. I assume you've seen the ones of like, you know, Bernie Sanders as a muscular right. guy on the beach and or Jesus you know, and Satan arm wrestling. Right? Yeah, you know, yeah like yeah. like if that's all it took to shake you off the Hillary bandwagon, right. you were never on. That's right. Yeah, so, that's right.
0: no, I think that's right. I mean, you can make a more sophisticated plausible case that it helped with voter intensity. Hmm. You know that that the people who already agreed, but now that Jesus is in Satan and Satan are arm wrestling, they you know they're they're really going to come out even if it rains. You yeah, know?
1: I was going to say, you know, the first time on on your kind of podcast, uh, Jonah, I don't think Hillary Clinton boxed Jesus. I, I, <laughs> you call me a softie, call me a cock, call me somebody who just doesn't have the fight. You know, yeah,
0: not to toot my own horn, and that's not in any way a Ron Jeremy Stormy Daniels <laughs> reference. But I knew Steve Glass. Huh? I was friends with Steve Glass, and or I was friendly with Steve Glass, and. Uh, So in the 90s, I was a television producer, and I shared office space with the original cast of Slate, the original writer, the DC office. So Dave Plotz, Frank Forward, Seth Stevenson, a bunch of those guys. And I remember it was first with the CPAC piece. And for listeners who don't know, go rent the movie Shattered Glass.
1: It'll teach you that Hayden Christensen can act.
0: Yeah. No, I know. It's amazing. Way better than he was as Anakin Skywalker. No, I know. And and he didn't even have to explain how much he hates sand. And, uh... (laughs) But, um... Uh, we were uh, – so I shared offices with these guys from Slate and – oh, so, so, I'm sorry. So Steve Glass made up something like 28 of the 29 articles he wrote with all these crazy anecdotes in them and crazy stuff. And so the CPAC one was the first one that my, my BS detector went ding, ding, because I knew those kids. I was one of those kids and like – but I was also – a previous incarnation in sort of high school kind of earlier youth – I was also one of the kind of kids he was describing—not some pig rapist guy, but like party guy. And I was like, I know party guys. I can see party guys. I know nerds. I can and and I was like, I go to CPAC, and my party guy detector is just—it's completely (laughs) flatlining. I mean, it's like I'm like Spock with the tricorder—no signs of life here. And and so the stories that he was telling were just—I just like I don't believe them. And then and then he wrote a diarist for the New Republic in which he had this thing about how. He had been talking to customer service at, what was the computer company that had the cow patterns? Gateway, uh, Dell, was one of those. Right. And, and he was talking to customer service about how he couldn't get his computer delivered. He was really pissed off and blah, 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 blah. And then he said that this corn-fed customer service operator in like Iowa or something like that or North Dakota said to him over the phone, well, I guess then the little Jew's not going to get his computer. And I was like, no. Do not believe that. I just, like, how lucky are you that every week you get the cab driver who's this and And so anyway, I said to Dave Plotz at the time, who was an editor of of Slate and became the editor-in-chief of Slate, and his friend of mine, whose wife, Hannah Rosen, worked at the New Republic, and I said, I think he makes this stuff up. I think he's just lying. And he blew up at me. And he was like, (laughs) that is crazy. No way. No, this is the new friggin' Republic. It's impossible. And I was like... i think he makes some of this stuff up i just don't believe it and so it's funny fast forward 10 years later i get a call out of the blue from a producer from hollywood who's like yeah we're we're making a movie about the stephen glass story and david Plotz said we should call you because he because he said jonah goldberg was the only one i ever talked to who called this before the story broke and so credit to david for doing that and but every time i you know like it's Every time I watch that movie I I think back at all of that stuff and the you're absolutely right the confirmation bias issue was huge and and the, I think the problem is is that we are kind of living in a we're, you and I aren't but there are a lot of I was going to say we're all Steven Glasses now but we're not there are people who they're not necessarily making stuff up but they are stringing together disparate facts and allegations in ways to tell audiences everything that they already believe to be true. Mm. And I think that's true of MSNBC. I think it's true of a lot of the opinion side of Fox and the people like, the guy, like us at National Review and a few other places who actually one day will be sort of sympathetic to Trump's position or was one day not sympathetic to it it creates such cognitive dissonance that it really pisses off a lot of people.
1: Yeah. First of all, I mean, so you working in, in you know, television production uh, for, for Ben Wattenberg, and you know, this, is, you know, this is back in the Mesozoic era, the yeah. 90s and all kind of stuff. Um, my first jobs at, in, in journalism were Congressional Quarterly and then a couple of dot coms. And man, you know. If you man, got... you must have gotten so much tail back then. Oh, <laughs> man, uh, yeah. Congressional <laughs> Quarterly. I was sending my clips back home to my mom and she said they were boring. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those moments where like, if you got something wrong, you felt like crap. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like you, you, your editor would be like, what the hell's wrong with you? And all yeah, that, yeah. you know, like, like there was consequences to getting something wrong. And there wasn't any like, I don't know if I would say three strikes and you're out, but if you, you know, if you, I just like let's just say I had editors telling me you can't I, I, you can't make mistakes yeah. or else you're not going to be here for that much longer. Yeah, and you know I'm sure there's some of my critics out there listening to this and saying well that's not that much of a surprise. <laughs> but you know, but there there was a consequence to getting stuff wrong, and I'm not sure that exists anymore. I'm not sure that that you know, and, and we could point to any one of a bunch of pundits. I remember in. Um, Shortly after working at NR um, and, and covering the Kerry spot, I had covered one of the papers I had written for before was the Boston Globe as a, as a wire stringer, and uh, you know talking to people on Kerry's staff, talking to people on you know Patrick Leahy's staff, you know getting them to talk to me, uh, and knowing that I was you know not necessarily their best friend and, and all that kind of stuff, and it was it was challenging to get Democrats on the record. To say to just one to return a phone call, but two to to, you know even talk, and there was another publication that I won't mention because I don't know the relationship between us and this other publication at this moment, but like you know an anonymously written column that always seemed to have just perfect quotes from you know this Democratic consultant says that Kerry is long winded and and I just look and I just was like "Mm, either either this columnist just happens to have. You know, all kinds of sources who are willing to, you know, yeah. not just trash their own side, but trash their own side in a way that would please the readers of a conservative publication. Um, and I just kind of, you know, it gave off a very strong BS, you know, detector. I don't think that's it. You know, like you look at, you know, Luis Mensch getting, you know, uh, stuff on space on the New York Times op-ed page. Yeah. You know, like nobody cares if he gets stuff wrong anymore. Yeah. At least, you know.
0: Well, first of all, you got to be careful because cor- the what, what is it? The – um the chief of the Supreme Court police force. That's right. The grand
1: uh, marshal of the Supreme Court. Is that
0: what it is? I can't so. remember because I mean some of that stuff... Uh, well,
1: uh, Tom Lee Jones in The Fugitive was one of the grand
0: marshals, right? <laughs> <laughs> for, again, for I, I don't want to go put p- here and over-explain everything because my assumption is if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're sort of up to speed. But for those who don't know, um, Louise Mensch is this writer... Uh, who used to be high up in Rupert World yeah. in Murdoch World uh,
1: first manager of Heat
0: Street yeah and um and generally considered to be a up and coming smart normal well, sane person turns out that she's back guano crazy and or a writes like she's back guano yeah, crazy you know. right so maybe there's a method to her madness but like you spent a big chunk of time in turkey right it's two years um i spent a much less time but uh, Chunk of time living in Czechoslovakia back when it was still Czechoslovakia. And one of my favorite things was to look at badly translated menus. And I still remember there was one restaurant that had, um, that described their steak as this has all of the smell and taste usually associated with old meat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, gotta get me some of that. And, and I'm sure in Czech it was like, uh, this is the ambrosia that we expect with the yeah, finally blah, blah, aged yeah. aged, yeah, yeah, aged yeah, meat, yeah, right? Yeah. But they get used meat, and um, and <laughs> Louise mentioned... Some of that stuff reads like it was actually translated from another. I mean, it's a little more massaged in that the sentences are grammatically correct, but the idea that the 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 arrest warrant has already been drafted by the Supreme Court, you know, um, it's it's like a it's novelistic as written by a fourth grader in moldova who doesn't like actually understand how american politics work or it's like a sci-fi description of a government not our own and i don't know where i'm going with that but i just i find it so fascinating and it's just never come up before hmm. but i agree with you you know we live in this i hate all this post fact post truth stuff cuz most of the people who say post fact post truth are also post fact and post Postmodernists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they they just they they want their accepted narrative yeah. to be the only accepted one. Yeah. And they're not nearly, you know, it's sort of like the double standard we have with, you know, uh, David Duke versus Farrakhan. Right. It's not that they, they want to apply all the rules and standards to the right, but they never want to apply them to their own side. And I kind of feel like I'm left in this world where, you know, as as befits this podcast today, as 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 George Costanza's dad says on Festivus, I got problems with all of you people. You
1: know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you are the right person for me to float, but it's kind of been a theory. I don't want to turn this into a book. I don't. Want, you know. But I, I maybe a long essay. Okay. So you and I are roughly the same age. You're a little older than I am. I remember in 1992, right? I'm in high school. I am the only person in my entire grade who likes George H.W. Bush. Right? I love the Dana Carvey impression. Yeah, not going to do it. You know, a couple of my classmates are intrigued by Perot, but everybody everybody loves Bill Clinton. He's playing the saxophone. He was on Arsenio Hall. He was cool, all kind of stuff. But what's more is that I believe '92 was the first year that MTV did Rock the Vote. Right? And it was mm-hmm. this idea I, I of hated Rock the Vote. Oh my But so like among them was like ads where Madonna would say, "If you don't vote, you're going to get a spanking." Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the idea that like no, wait, you you shouldn't need Madonna threatening a spanking to motivate you, right? If you don't feel like voting, don't vote. And, I know and there is a school of thought that
0: says, if that's what Madonna's going to do to me, maybe I shouldn't vote. <laughs> yeah, At least you know, yeah. Madonna
1: back then. pre oh, exactly. Yeah. Free
0: skeleton yeah. Madonna.
1: Um, but I remember sitting there and thinking like, you know, look, and the, the, you know, the number of people in my high school class who were into politics, you can count on two hands, right? And the rest of them were like, you know, this is this is it was the land of the geeks, the dweebs, the nerds normal people weren't interested in politics. And, and early on, I got gravitated into it, like, enjoying stuff like Doonesbury uh, and the Saturday Night Live sketches. And like, I, I got into it because I liked political humor and I yeah. wanted to know what the jokes were about, right? But it quickly turned into this thing like, you know, okay, so it's the land of the people who actually care about this stuff and are actually willing to do the reading, so to speak, and everybody else. And the, this intersection between pop culture and politics was an effort to make politics interesting to everybody else. You mm-hmm. can look back to... John F Kennedy's George Mac I mean there's there's, there's been this gradually bleeding this yes. spreading over between these two worlds. And I always feel like, you know, them being separated was never a problem. Leave politics and governance to the people who actually care about it. And if if you're and if you're not that into it, you don't have to get that into it. Right. Th- that it's perfectly okay cuz ultimately you end up with celebrity candidates, Jesse Ventura being elected governor, you know, and and I went back and I checked the the most popular governors in the country. Republicans can do a little dance that I think they have the 10 of the most popular, uh, highest approval rating governors in the country. But most of you know, um, Charles Baker. Governor of Massachusetts, I bet you a good chunk of the listeners of this podcast couldn't tell you much about him. Yeah, Larry Hogan in Maryland, um, they could probably tell you he beat cancer, but right. not much beyond that. Uh, they were all relatively not known out of their own states, and my suspicion is it's because they actually focus on governing. Right, they're not celebrity governors, right? And the, you know, coming in dead last for the last couple of surveys was uh, uh, Chris Christie. Now, there's a lot of different reasons. A lot of people have a lot of reasons to not like Chris Christie. But I think a big, you know, like, I couldn't help but notice that Chris Christie is the only one who probably was on Jimmy Fallon. Right. Uh, that was a quasi-done Sarah Live guest appearance. You know, like, and my argument is that governors, senators, presidents, people in politics aren't supposed to be celebrities. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to see them on The Tonight Show. You're not supposed to, you know, like, once in a while, if you want to have them on to do a, a you know, Wacky cameo on Saturday Night Live, fine, but they're not supposed to be. And you know, a lot of this was with Obama. Some people would say, "Oh, this goes back to uh, Schwarzenegger. This goes back to Reagan. All that kind of stuff." I, I feel like the merging of these two worlds have been terrible for the American for the American government government experiment and democracy and all that kind of stuff. And I'd love to see it separated. I'd love to see it pulled apart. Let the people who aren't interested in politics live lives not interested in politics. I don't think they're casual interest, this need to turn the political process into a nightly show, because then you end up with a president who thinks it's a reality show, right? I mean, like, anyway, so I, this yeah. is my rant, and I, you know, I... No, no, like, I, I figured okay, this was I, just, I, like, catnip that I would just, you know, I put have, out...
0: I have a whole big spiel about that in this book that's coming out, and... I I, I,
1: I also figured that might be something to you you know,
0: do. You know, as I, I think I put it in a G file not too long ago, um, uh... Our politics are becoming our pol our, our lifestyles becoming politicized, and everyone's been talking about that for a very long time about how like you know you have to be woke and you know environmentally sensitive. Some person wrote in the New York Times this week that it's difficult to enjoy your hamburger yes. um, when you think about all the greenhouse gases associated yeah. with it, and it's like. Big, if true, you know what I, mean? <laughs> what I was saying. So you're going to finish that burger? So you're not? Okay, good. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I mmm, mean, yeah. climate change. And, um, but what people forget, or people haven't appreciated until very recently, is that just as our lifestyles are becoming politicized, our politics are becoming lifestyleized, And we are now sort of, you know, and so Trump broke in a significant way the blood-brain barrier between politics and entertainment, right? And I, I've... I think I've talked about this a couple times here. Seems to me this is a—I remember saying this in 2015 and 2016. Precedent-wise, this is a much bigger problem for Democrats than it is for Republicans, because our celebrities kind of peter out at Scott Baio and Ted Nugent, right? (laughs) And you know this whole stuff about Oprah and you know Tom Hanks. Let's say Cynthia Nixon running against Andrew Cuomo in New York, Governor. Yeah. And so I think this is all—and this is the argument I make in the book—but I think this is all downstream of the fact. That civil society is becoming so broken down that we look to national politics to give us a sense of meaning that we once got from our organic communities. And when you watch things from that far away, you have to watch them basically as entertainment rather than as Hmm. actual politics. And so with Obama, you saw, you know, I got this from Ace of Spades, uh, who... I no longer, he was no longer a fan of mine, let us say. Yeah. Um, I understand
1: the family's, the feeling's mutual.
0: Yeah. He, uh, but he had this great phrase of the MacGuffinization of politics, That's right? That. And so when Obama was saying over and over and over and over and over and over again that he couldn't possibly repeal uh, or do DACA because it was he's not a king, whatever, the second he does it, the media coverage is, yay. Heroic Obama overcomes his opposition, and not one of them who credited him with his position that it was unconstitutional said, wait a second, Barack Obama just violated the Constitution, right? And you get the same thing now with Trump, where everyone watches all of this stuff as if it is a form of entertainment. And Trump, because of his lizard brain narcissism... Has put this all on steroids, where he, you know, he basically telegraphs. I just want wins. Yeah, and people don't care about the context of the win or the merits of the win. It's just they don't care if it's a constitutional win. They just want to say Trump wins. And I think Facebook makes this work. I think Twitter makes it worse because what you get is this. If I have to hear one more person say non-ironically, "Your tears are delicious," or talk about frigging butthurt, you know, as if that justifies a position. But that's, the, you know, as I call it in the book, it's ecstatic schadenfreude, where, you know, you, you have people, serious people, former friends of mine, some current friends of mine, who openly argue that a position is worth taking solely if it pisses off the other side.
1: Yeah. And that's asinine to me. Yeah. Uh, the argument of liberal tears, like, is that is 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 you know, uh, was it Stephen Covey who says, begin with the end in mind? Mm-hmm. Is, is that the end? Is, is that our ultimate... Objective. I, if you had said liberal tears because we have enacted conservative policies and we have a thriving economy and a more secure world and uh, a flourishing of civil society and traditional values and strong families and all the stuff that conservatives traditionally stood for, okay, then fine. Yeah, I'm fine with the liberal tears. You know, I, I you know, ultimately though, my aim is not like it's all that stuff that's making them crying that I want. Right. I don't really care how they react. And in fact, there's a part of me that's like, I'd love to see them say. Hey, wait a minute! This is working out. I like you know, like like you'd like to have thought they would have reacted with the tax cuts, where all of a sudden you know the markets are taking off like a you know uh, companies. All these years, uh, Democrats and liberals wanted uh, companies to have a fifteen dollars minimum wage. Right now, all of a sudden these big companies are saying, "Hey, you know, oh look, we managed to achieve one of your guys' goals through through our policies." Right, I'd love to see them. Oh, okay, good. All right, right," you know, like you know, of course they can't. Right. But that, but that supports
0: the point, right? Is that yeah. politics has become entertainment? It's politics. Not about, yeah, the politics. politics is supposed to be about persuasion, about convincing people. You know, go back to Aristotle, convincing people in a different coalition that their interests are better served in your coalition. And if it's really about arguments and what's better for the common good and all that kind of stuff, you should welcome being proven wrong about something. That is just the last thing anybody wants to do, you know. But you know, this idea of think about. Begin by thinking what's the phrase? Begin by, thinking the about, begin with the end in mind, right, which is not the direction that the director gave to Stormy Daniels in her latest film. <laughs> um, but it is a good sort of segue to bring up something that I should have brought up earlier, which is donors' trust, mm. um, which they may not like that segue very much, but yeah you know, they as the as the scorpion said to the frog, uh, you knew I made porn references every now and then when I came here, um so to speak, so um. If you use your charitable dollars to support freedom, you should know about Donors Trust. And I'm serious about this. You know, this is a very serious, grown-up piece of ad copy that they give me. And I have absolutely no problem reading it because they do great work and they do important work. And I'm delighted that they're advertising here. But, you know, if I can just digress for a second and just, just make this more sort of simple point. Most of the important work of the conservative movement, most of the important work in life, forget whether you call it conservative or not, is done at the local level. The fight for liberty is in your backyard right? It's about civil society. It's not about, you know, getting ads on, on cable news. And it's not about, you know, arguments that happen in the carnival stall barking world of, of late night talk shows. It's it's about actually improving people's lives. And that's one of the things that Donors Trust is really about, is about figuring out a way for those people fortunate enough in life to have some money that they want to donate to charity, but they don't want to see it um, you know, run away from them and go to things that they don't believe in or don't support their values. That's what, that's what Donors Trust is all about. It's sort of matching you up, your charitable donations, with your values. Um, so all donor, don't, all donor advised funds offer the same basic services. But Donors Trust is the only donor advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo to access your free six reasons to use a donors-advised fund guide and see for yourself why experts are recommending this fast-growing tool for charitable givers. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus, two additional ebooks, to help you identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. If you believe private philanthropy is the best way to strengthen civil society, Donors Trust is the partner you need to strategically meet your charitable goals. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor-advised fund and discover the smarter way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's DonorsTrust.org slash dingo. So we should probably get back to more rank punditry before we have to call this thing over.
1: Sounds um, good. But I just wanted to point out uh, in the, you know, the fine work of donors DonorsTrust. Jonah, I have heard more people who say, oh, my, my great uncle died and he left it to his, his alma mater. He always had these – and they have wonderful memories of what the university used to be. Right. And they said, oh, well, you're going to build a new wing for the physics department or something like that. And then they say, actually, the university you – know, leadership of the university has changed. All of a sudden, no, actually, no, we've decided to start a new you know, socialist utopia studies department and we're going to use your money for that. Like, my understanding, you don't distrust, would not allow stuff like that to happen. That's so. right. That's the whole idea. And what is it? O'Sullivan's Law –
0: any expressly any institution that is not expressly conservative becomes liberal over time. And you look at the Ford Foundation and all these uh, kinds of yeah. things. There's a lot of that going on there. And there are some organizations like Donors Trust that work to sort of not necessarily make everybody conservative, but but make sure that the money that conservatives give or that libertarians give actually matches up with. what Often those doing.
1: cases, you're not around to complain about it. That's so, true. Yes, that your Donors Trust is. So anyway, um,
0: so will Donald Trump fire Robert Mueller, or will? Well, I, 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 what is the uh, it, in in Judaism? There's the whole, you know, the um, at Passover, you know, the who who killed the kid,
1: who ate the goat, who did what?
0: What is that thing? You know, do you know what I'm talking about at Passover seder? I just can't remember the name of it because I'm
1: in a weird. Barking the the blood the blood on the door. No, no, no. It's
0: this it's this call fun call and response thing you do at the end of the, the seder. It's sort of like God. What is it? The Miss Mary Mack nursery rhyme. The and the, the horse ate the dog that ate the cat that yes. ate the whatever whatever the um and i'm gonna get so much grief for for blanking on this but that's okay if trump fires Mueller what he's got to do is he's got to fire rosenstein <laughs> right who then must a series of dominoes yeah, yeah have, so yeah. you gotta he's either gotta replace sessions who will fire and the new guy will re- fire rosenstein who will then fire Mueller yeah. right do you think that it happens
1: well, Paul Ryan says he's been assured it's not going to happen, so we don't have to worry about this yeah. you know, like, look, Jonah, if you can't take it from the, the the president himself, why you know from the very beginning of this, I have always been one you know, only
0: kid, one only kid is the thing from Passover I'm okay. thinking of. anyway, go on there we
1: All right. I've always been on the skeptical side. I never thought that anybody was going to find some, you know, video, no P tape, Uh uh, no videotape of Putin and Trump cackling, and then to be able to hack the, uh, that's my horrible Vladimir Putin. Yeah, don't don't do that Um, (laughs) again. And I I agree with you. I'm not talking about collusion. I'm just thinking, does he fire Mueller? At this point, the the, the attitude, the, the, the common word around Washington is that this is now Trump unleashed, that there was a certain amount of anxiety early in the president. So... As I was driving here uh, through the delightful D.C. traffic, I was listening to people saying that um, Trump, has, you know, he brought in a new lawyer. Uh, there was talk that he wanted to hire Ted Olson, and I guess Ted Olson's firm is representing somebody else under investigation. And he uh-huh. said I couldn't join because of the potential conflict of interest. Uh, you know, Trump. So they dis- brought on Joe Genova. Joe DiGenova, thank you. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, you know, Trump denied that he was not happy with Ty Cobb, but at the same time, he had also just I, I had not heard. I somehow this had escaped my attention. This scathing tweet of Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who by the way, you know, constantly covers this, this this White House, gets a lot of scoops. And my understanding is has, you know, spoken on the record on the record to the president a lot, and my understanding is is talked a lot to the president in more yeah. casual environments. Uh, Trump, you know, that, that she's a Hillary loving, it just denounces her for saying that he's not ha- for writing a story saying that he's not happy with his legal team and he's gonna hire somebody else. That was a week ago, and now he hires Genova. Like so, you know, he's saying that's fake news, all that kind of stuff. We've already seen the Game of Thrones environment in the White House staff and in the Trump cabinet. When somebody tells Trump something he doesn't want to hear, or when Trump gets bad news or things aren't, he, I'm going to fire somebody. You keep telling me not to hit the table, and I hit the table for right. emphasis. That, that's fine for over, emphasis. Right. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Trump, you know, basically, it's, it's of Jack Butler is sitting at the table, openly weeping. Because yeah. he has the one that has to edit the sound on this. Uh, Trump, you know, is, you know, fire somebody. Right. Is the slogan on The Apprentice? Um, he, he constantly is changing the cast around him. And getting the same results, almost like the problem isn't the people around right, him, right, you know. Right. But you have this uh, circumstance in which, which you know, Trump seems to be bringing that same philosophy towards his legal team. That doesn't strike me as a good idea. My attitude, and, I, and people can call me a fuddy duddy or, or you know, crazy establishment. All, you know, I think that a lot of institutions are kind of like NFL offensive lines. The more they play together, the better they do. That they need time to get used to each other. They need time to kind of. Uh, figure out what each other, everybody's good at, you know, that basically team cohesion and consistency. Now, look, when things aren't working out, you got to make changes. But ultimately, that there's just way too much churn in the Trump team, people coming and going. You know, we all started a new job. We all know how much time it takes to kind of get the handle on things and feel comfortable and all kind of stuff. I, I think Trump making sweeping changes to his legal team right now. Would be astonishingly uh, unwise, and yeah. and you know, and the fact that this is being talked about indicates that the sort of like it would be you know, I think it was um, was it Orrin Hatch who said that you know firing Mueller would be the most foolish thing he could do. Well, apparently the the, the institutions that would say, Mister President, you don't want to do that, aren't around him anymore. Unless Ivanka, unless Jerry, somebody around him can say, you know, if you do this, like us, you know, obviously every Democrat or every Democrat already supports your impeachment. At some point, some chunk of Republicans might decide, you know, this is, this is not worth it. Yeah.
0: So let me, as, 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 as she says in Fargo, let me question some of your police work there. All
1: right.
0: I think, I mean, I, your analysis, I think, is entirely right. I, I, but I think looking at his legal team in isolation from everything else that's going on in his administration is wrong, I think what he's doing is he only cares, he gets all of his information from TV. He doesn't read, right? People who, you know, whatever masochistic... You know, all in for Trump listeners, I have. I, I don't know why you're still listening to this. If you can't handle this very obvious truth, the guy doesn't read. I'm I'm sure at one point he did, but he doesn't now. He even wants all his briefings orally because he can't he – he doesn't have the attention span to read. And he takes all of his cues from television. He thinks – in. I think – this is my interpretation – is that he hasn't actually... Pro- even For a guy who knows more about ratings and cares more about ratings than anybody in living memory, he doesn't actually process the fact that, like, on a good night on Fox News, there are maybe 3, 3.5 million viewers, which means there are something like 327 million Americans who aren't watching it. He thinks the whole world is watching either Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. And I understand, like, if people were crapping all over me on TV, I would get worked up about it too, but... um, the problem is it's not just that this is happening on tv this is his narnian wardrobe this is all he can see this is his it's 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 the snow globe from 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 citizen kane i mean this is his universe is seeing things through tv and everybody that he's replacing uh, that he's bringing in he's basically bringing in people who can argue for him on tv and he want it's basically his fox Force 5 right <laughs> and and so Cudlow, you know we yeah. love larry larry's a great guy um, don't agree with him on everything, but you know we've. All, you know Larry's been a friend at National Review for a very long time, um, former economics editor at National Review. I don't think he's being brought in for his economic expertise. I don't. I think he's being brought in because he's really good on CNBC and Trump has seen him there. I think uh, D- Joe Genova is really aggressive on TV. Mm-hmm. I bet you that. The more and more people that we see come in, you know, that's why he wants Pete Hegseth
1: to be the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Hegseth, I should point out, did interview for the job back in early 2017. So this isn't you know, uh, I, but he's always cared about. It. I mean, the Correct. reason why you like Tillerson yes. is he look the part. Yeah. You know, the, 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 undoubtedly Trump is visual based, and and all of that. I, I wouldn't dispute much of what you said there. The only thing I would kind of you know throw out is is kind of this sense that. I I still think Trump likes change for the sake of change. Oh sure. And I think I think you're right that you know his you know at some point it, you're right what Trump is looking for is this great you know I'm going we're going to win on television and and maybe you could say okay you're president of the United States you do have to have a a public tr- you're you're being tried in the court of public opinion at the same time Mueller is doing something in front of a grand jury. Right. On the other hand, if you win at the the grand jury you're going to win in public opinion too. Right. Right. right? Particularly considering how much everybody said, look, and, and I was among those who would agree. Robert Mueller is a career FBI guy. He's a straight shooter. This is a guy who worked for Bush for 10, you know, there. one of the things I had in the back of my mind is that at some point is going to look at this and say, nope, no collusion. Come out with his final report and everybody uh, on the left would say, ah, Trump got to Mueller, right? You know the, the you know, and and that kind the, of they would not the same way. You know the the nine eleven commission. There are still people who insist that wasn't thorough enough. Uh, Fitzmists, remember Carl Rove's going to be frog marching and yeah, hog yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that that the left would ultimately this argument about Russian collusion is an attempt to undo twenty sixteen. Sure, a deal to co- a psychological coping with twenty sixteen. Don't forget two thousand diebold voting machines. Oh, right. yeah, two thousand. Yeah. John Kerry himself believes apparently according to you know, an article. Genuinely, still has questions about the diebold machines in in Ohio yeah. in two thousand four. Um, that that ultimately it was about that and and you know Mueller coming out and saying nope, no collusion. You know because the other thing also I've kind of in the back of my mind, Jonah, and and you're the right person to kind of air this to. So let's say Mueller finds the videotape of Putin and you know the, the real smoking gun stuff for collusion for collusion okay. for for you know up I thought to, you meant you know, the P tape. Yeah no 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 yeah you know, you know, something you know, something where. I Committee remember Mueller coming out and saying, after this thorough investigation, we have found incontrovertible truth, through, uh, proof that, that Trump was fraudulently elected. This is not a legitimate election. Um, sorry about that, America. We, mm-hmm. We've got, you know, two years of, you know, at least a year and a half of a presidency that shouldn't have happened. Oh by the way good job FBI good job CIA NSA entire national security you know committee community uh good job Obama administration you know you all totally failed and somebody who was in, you know conspiring with a foreign power right. got elected president of the United States I, you know I almost can't get my head around that type of scenario yeah. Well, that would be, you know, if not the proper response, uh, it would be, you know, it would make Watergate look like a parking ticket, right? It would be yeah. a, the biggest scandal. That's one of the reasons I have a hard time. All believing. part of Mike Pence's plan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I do periodically wonder if Pence looks at himself in the mirror every morning and hums you know, "Hail to the Chief." <laughs>
0: I, I I wonder what Mike Pence sees when he looks himself in the mirror, um, but. Yeah, no, look, I, I agree. If, if that happened, load up on canned goods, right?
1: Because yeah. it's going to yeah. get wacky. Yeah. But, now, what, what does seem a little more plausible is Mueller finds something not related to collusion. Well, that's my thesis. Yeah, that, 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 so, like, you know,
0: over the weekend, Trey Gowdy was saying, look, if you're innocent, stop acting like you're guilty, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. on the very first episode of the Rank Punditry podcast, at some point we're going to just have a split off and it's going to become like the Joni Loves Chachi of this podcast. We'll just have a Rank Punditry podcast and a Remnant podcast. off. yeah. The I, I've been making this case for a very long time. I, I think Trump did something. I don't know if it's a criminal thing. Yeah. I don't know, you know, if it's, you know Steve didn't Bannon re- says it's money laundering, yeah, right?
1: Didn't report income on tax. Right. Or you know, is okay.
0: only worth $400 million and not $5 billion. Yeah. Or, you know, all this Normie Daniels stuff, maybe there's worse things out there. Um, I don't know what it is, but he has a reasonable expectation that Mueller will find these things and it'll either be legal, put them in legal jeopardy, Political jeopardy, or personal, or undermine his own sense of greatness, and so he's freaking out. It's sort of like when um, your uh, your parents find something in your bedroom that you're not supposed to have. I don't know, uh, the Stormy Daniels box set, bag of weed. I don't, know, whatever it is, right? And you want to claim you know, violation of privacy. You want to be the outraged one. You had no right to search my room, right? Yeah. You know, I think that's what Trump is. You have no right to search my room um, because I didn't collude. And he, so, so he keeps screaming, there was no collusion, there was no collusion. And partly it's also his ego crap about this is a way to undermine his, mm-hmm. the legitimacy of his... Which, by the way, it is. Right? Oh, it, of course it, 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 it is. is yeah. He's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but this is, it's like the McCabe thing. Yeah. Everybody, there are, there are no angels in this entire story. Yeah. Right? I mean, David French's piece was very good. It was like five minutes ago, Democrats were laughing their asses off at anybody who talked about the the deep state, right? And Republicans were, or, or Hannityites, were all saying, "Oh, you know, deep state. The FBI is completely corrupted." Then the FBI comes out with a report that basically says McCabe is a bad guy and or did something wrong. Yeah. It's just I don't know if he's a bad guy. investigators. Well, lied to, to investigators. Oh, by the way, that's right, what's got right. a bunch of the Trump guys in trouble. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, like the Democrats are all, you know, the MSNBC crowd is like. Well, um, you
1: can't trust the
0: FBI yeah, inspector is, uh, and, general. And, 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 yeah. and John Haney is like, I take a backseat to no one in my faith and confidence in yeah. the FBI. I and mean, it's all, you know, it's, 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 it's infuriating in a lot of ways. But, but I think that there's a reason beyond just simply ego that Trump has behaved the way he has towards Mueller. And which is why, just as a pure political spectator... Barring all other things, the good of the republic, the good of the Republican Party, the good of conservatism, I am looking forward to Robert Mueller's report.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, well, uh, to me, this has been the, the slowest peeling Band-Aid. A, yeah. this, this makes, and he's moving fast for right? a special counsel. Also, and this yeah. makes the Star Report look like a – because you know, between uh, – but boy, I'm just hang all your, all your career greatest hits. Um, <laughs> let's See, So it came out in January of 98? the 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 no no I'm talking about the Lewinsky scandal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the Star report came out, I want to say summer at some point of of 98? No. My- no, like it was at least a year for that thing to come out. It was not Seven months later. I don't mean from when it began. I mean from when we learned about Lewinsky to when... He was a the Star Report. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to say that, that, you know, the Newsweek article and Drudge and all that stuff happened in January 98. Yeah. And it was sometime in the middle of that year, I want to say, the Star Report came out.
0: I think that's way too expedited. I think it was not six months. Uh-huh.
1: But So the point being that, like... I could be wrong. Yeah. yeah. That this was a, you know, the, 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 look, if conceivably, you know, you've got a, a guy who conspired with the Russians, by golly, we've got to know about that as quickly as possible. Even beyond that, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's mid-March as we're, you know, and, and there's no indication that this report is coming anytime soon. Yeah. yeah my guess is it's going to be really interesting reading. My guess is there's going to be a lot of, uh, uh, that, you know, look, you know, the, 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 w- one of the reasons... Hey, you're, oh. you're closer to right than I was. It was released September 11, 1998. <laughs> oh, first of all, all right, yeah, very and good. And you it's,
0: know. It's, it's, numerologists will note yeah, eight, you. Yeah, never. Know. <laughs> you, know.
1: uh, you ready for something else weird? Uh. September 11, 1994, a plane crashed into the White House. I remember It was a small that. Cessna jet. Matthias was his name, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. September 11th. So, My favorite thing about that story? Yeah. Just,
0: I, used, I used to use it in speeches about media bias all the time. The Boston Globe had a story about it where the guy who crashed the plane, right? Was had all sorts of problems, right? You know, like wife left him, he was on drugs, he lost his job, right? So the lead had something like, and I'm probably being unfair because it's been exaggerated in my mind over the last 30 friggin' years or whatever, but was whatever his name uh, whatever his name was, it was like Joe Blow, his wife gone, his job gone, his hope for the f- oh, uh, his hope f- uh, laid down his crack pipe. And Tried to find in death, but he couldn't get it in life. And the the phrasing of it was all that. What really put him over the edge was Newt Gingrich and the Republicans taking back Congress. <laughs> 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 like if only oh, it's faith in government
1: destroyed.
0: Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> is what you know. Made him take to the skies and fly his plane. Anyway, go on.
1: No, like, the only other thing I'm going to add to that is that I believe, at least there's some, there's some joke in the halls of the CIA afterwards, that that was Woolsey trying to get a meeting. <laughs> uh, because apparently Bill Clinton in his early years was not – I know it's going to shock you, the idea Never that Bill Clinton not responding to intelligence warnings about things like terrorism and stuff. Yeah. That that's, That doesn't sound like the Bill Clinton we know. All right. So, OK. We're going really long. So, so I, I, I think it's a, you have an awesome guess. Uh, last punditry problem. All right.
0: Uh, question: What is the future of the GOP after,
1: in the wake of Trump, whether it's four years or eight years? Uh, okay, um, Jonah, the scenario that keeps me up at night is a little closer than that. Where I, you know, we've heard the the buzz that Jeff Flake wants to think about running for president. Uh, John Kasich apparently never stopped running for president. If you give me a, a Republican primary ballot in Virginia sometime in the spring of twenty twenty. And my options are John Kasich, Jeff Flake, and, and Donald Trump. Look, I'll say, you know, as, as somebody who voted for Rubio in the primary, I might vote for Trump just to get at Kasich because if Kasich had dropped out, I think Cruz would have had him one-on-one and there might have been a chance. I, I can't stand John Kasich. I can't stand John Kasich. All right. But... So anyway, so it was like Bobby Jindal, one of my all-time favorite uh, Republican lawmakers, had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple months ago. I said, you know, the Republicans in the post-Trump era. And I just thought about it. like we we look we're 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 in the middle of the maelstrom right now. But at some point, Donald Trump will not be president of the United States. Um, the gentle piece it, it was a a a you know thin it was it was not it was, I felt like there was more meat on the bone that did not make it into that op-ed. It generally was a distaste for Mitch McConnell uh, and that Republicans had to try to keep some of the Trump voters uh, without Trump's bad habits and things like that. The kind of the blue collar you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Ross's book, was it, you know, Sam's Club America, or Sam's Club Republicans and stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, sorry, I would like to think that there is a vision of the Republican Party that can win back those suburbanites that is not – because I, I get, you know, lots of folks who are really not fans of Trump saying, w- how, how does this end? When does this end? There's one possibility you – know, there, there is always the possibility that we've seen this president just going through this wacky stuff. And for the past 15, 16 months of his presidency, it's actually been pretty good. No, I, I, I'm on record. I think it's going to get worse. Right. I mean, the, the sense that, you know, we've had, you know, North Korea firing missiles and stuff like that. Every presidency gets tested. And I almost wonder if a lot of the traditional troublemakers in the world are looking at Trump and saying, you know, there's a, there's a greater than zero chance he might nuke us in yeah. response to something. So maybe he's got the world. But at some point, some crisis happens. Something happens. And it's, you know, not unthinkable. I mean, we're about to go into a summit with North Korea, allegedly, with uh, with no – we have not had an ambassador to South Korea appointed. Like not, not nominated you – know, you can gripe about the Senate. But traditionally, presidents come to Washington with a team. Like they've always had their Korea guy. They've always had their and – and Trump doesn't have any of this. And Trump doesn't seem to recognize the importance of any of this. And so at some point when there's a crisis of, you know, Mr. President, the North Koreans have shot down, you know, an, an American jet or something like that. He's not surrounded by his usual people, and he trusts his gut and he starts putting stuff out on Twitter and stuff like that it, It's conceivable this ends really badly with it's a it was a pleasant surprise for Minnesota when the governorship of Jesse Ventura did not end with some sort of you know terrible disaster I don't think you know there's, there's a greater than zero chance that it ends with some sort of really preventable this is why you don't elect celebrities to President of the United States. Uh, America. And oh, by the way, maybe you don't want celebrities as governors or senators or, or things like that. Beyond that, I, I don't know. I, I, I had this nagging doubt after Obama's election in 2008. I start, you know, I'd had a book come out. I went back to that uh, uh, Stanford. Uh, uh, Brookings does the, you know, you come out for a week and you mm-hmm. can use there. And I was thinking about doing a book on cults of personality. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed like to me it was transparent. There was such a cult of personality around Obama. Totally. People chanting the uh, San Francisco op-ed newspaper op-ed asking who was a light bringer or yeah, light worker, light, light worker. Light yes, worker, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, the, uh, for, for for listeners who don't know, go to the website. Is Obama the Messiah? Or oh yeah, like fantastic yeah. Uh, collection of Cur- curated quotes from so many people about how he might might actually be the Messiah.
1: Yeah, or an angel, yeah. uh, or some other divine, divinely inspired uh, uh, person sent to save us all, and I. I I was unnerved at the thought of what I thought was this cult of personality forming around Barack Obama. And at that point, Jonah, I thought there was a cult of personality forming around Sarah Palin. (laughs) Silly me. Um, And that that, that our politics would become dueling cults of personalities, that, that it actually would stop being about ideology, ideas policies, all the stuff that got me as a young person into politics and, you know, interested in these, you know, late night dorm debate sessions and all that kind of stuff. And it was mostly about, no, no, my celebrity Munific- Munificent Sun King is, is right, the right. better one. He can make a boulder so heavy even he can't lift Right. And, yeah, and just, yeah. you know, it could get very bad and very dark in that case, in particular, this, this is the appropriate closing note for The Remnant. But I think what's more is that people, the wonks of the world, uh, which is not just everybody in this building at AEI, but, but you know, throughout Washington... I, I think people would lose interest in politics because it just it, – it wouldn't be about ideas anymore. It wouldn't be about stuff. It would be about my guy is cooler. And, um, you know, there's an entire – app have all this griping about uh, the conservative establishment, conservative incorporated and all that kind of stuff. The people who really fume about that, you can kind of tell they're not into policies. Like when I rave about Bobby Jindal, it's because of what he did in there. Yeah. Rick Perry, the Texas miracle, yeah. uh, the reduction in prison populations in there, the the job... Cre- like, we used to care about stuff, right? You know, and now it's about, no, Stormy Daniels is a liar. You know, I just... Yeah. I don't care about that stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Um, is this an appropriate downbeat note to end Yeah, on? well, well, well let, look, I, I basically... Read
0: you. I mean, my someone asked me on a radio show a couple weeks ago, you know, will the Republican Party be recognizable after Trump? And I said, well, you know... The Statue of Liberty was recognizable to Charlton Heston at the end of Planet <laughs> of the Apes. <laughs> um, See, so there's hope, people. Yeah, yeah. But um, on a cheerier note, just very quickly, Stormy Daniels isn't lying, right? I mean, no. like, I mean, like, no. I, I you know, I find the, the the I think this is now the truest acid test of of even the most cultish because, like, most of the hardcore Trumpers I hear from say, "Who cares?" Yeah, you know, but they they obviously think yeah. that Donald Trump. And let's be clear. It wasn't just that Donald Trump betted a porn star. It was that shortly after the birth of his child, he cheated on his, you know, wife with a porn star. But I'm wondering if, like, Bill Mitchell actually thinks that Trump isn't lying. I mean, is is there somebody out there who doesn't think that Trump is lying? I have not heard from them.
1: I love this idea that the lawyer decided to pay $130,000 out of his own pocket. To, as part of this nondisclosure agreement so that she would not claim something that wasn't true. Right. So, like,
0: no... But the amazing thing is no one in the Trump world has accused her once of blackmail. You know? I mean, like... Uh, yeah. It, which is fascinating, right? I mean, like, she they could accuse her of blackmail whether the allegations are true or not, but they're not doing that, right? They're instead saying, of all the porn stars who could have come up with a fake story, this is the one that we thought the story was... So damaging, even though it was fake, that we're going to give her one hundred thirty thousand dollars, and now we're going to sue her for every single time she's talked about this imaginary thing. Right. You know that didn't happen. You know it's it's bizarre. All right. Well, Jim, thank you for coming. If you don't mind sitting here for just two seconds, no we'll Do some quick housekeeping. Uh, first of all, I apologize to listeners who don't like the long podcast, but we haven't heard a lot of complaints from people about the podcast being too long. Jack hates them too long, but. That's not my concern. And since Ross didn't come here, I just figured we would just keep going with this thing. Thank you so much to uh, Christine Rosen, who actually sent the Slash Dingo t-shirt. We were wondering where the hell it came from because there was no note attached. We are now in the process of coming up with our own Slash Dingo swag and some other stuff. And future guests will get one. Sorry, Jim, you're just not there yet. (sighs) Too early. I also want to say to... Listeners, thank you so much again for pre-buying books. This will come out probably on Wednesday, March 21st. And I have two things to say about that. First, it enrages me that the Vernal equinox is now March 20. All of my life, the Vernal equinox, i.e. the first day of spring, was March 21st. And I took particular pride in this because of my second point. March 21st is my birthday. And I always took pride in the fact that I kept my mom in labor for something like 17 hours so I could be born in Aries in the spring. And it was always kind of cool that it was in the spring. But now, because of the damn you know uh, hypothetical equator of the planet and where the sun is, it's not going to be March 21st again until the, like, the year 2100. And if they can make laws about daylight savings time and all this kind of stuff, I think we should pass a law that keeps it on March 21st and, and screw the calendars. Second of all, if you... Ha- If you're inclined to get me a birthday present, here are the things that you can do. First, you can always send me good single malt scotch. That is fine. If you don't feel like doing that, um, you can also send me Jameson's Irish whiskey. Um, If you don't feel like doing that, you can subscribe to this podcast. Um, It helps us. It helps everybody. It helps all the things that I'm concerned about um, in terms of advertising and reach and all that kind of thing. It makes John Pedoretz sad. You could also leave a review. I would love to get over 2,000 five-star reviews at iTunes. We're heading that direction. Or you could do this thing that would make me happiest of all, and you could pre-order my book, which is coming out on April 24th, called Suicide of the West. It's not nearly as gloomy as the title suggests. There's a ray of sunshine at the end or a ray of hope at the end. Um, It's not just the oncoming train. And if you have uh, questions, concerns, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at us at the remnant uh, pod at gmail.com, Or you can tweet us at Jonah Remnant on Twitter and uh, or you can go to Jonah where we've got um, we'll have the show notes for this. And also, yeah, speaking of Jonah Goldberg.com, I really want to thank Ken Schultz of Abundance Media, who was incredibly patient and attentive and did a fantastic job with creating our website uh, at jenagolberg.com. They do fantastic work. I, I know this not just from personal experience, but from other people who recommended them. And uh, I just want to say kudos and thanks to them. And I will see you or talk to you in some form. Or... Oh, I'm going on vacation next week. I don't know what's going to happen with this podcast. You'll just have to just keep hitting refresh on your feed like a monkey in a cocaine study to see if we're going to have another one. Thanks, everybody.